All right, let's take the Word of God together and go to the book of Jude. Jude, verses 20 through 23. Jude 20 through 23. And we will be considering the subject this morning, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look together in verse 20, and we'll read down through verse 23. Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Notice we get our subject from verse 21, where it says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. To look for is to expect. It is to expect and to wait for. Jude is writing about something that is still yet to come. We understand today that there is the mercy of God. We are familiar with the mercy of God. If we're believers today, we know that without the mercy of God, we would have absolutely no hope today. But he's talking about looking for this mercy or expecting this and waiting for it. And really, before we even get into the exposition of the text, we need to understand what is he talking about looking for? Is he only speaking of that which is to come or is he talking about that which has been, that which is, and that which is to come? And it's the latter. We first of all need to consider that when he speaks of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ here, he is first of all, he's speaking this from three different perspectives. From the first perspective, he's reminding believers, the beloved, of the mercy of Jesus Christ that has been shown in the past. Not so much to our personal past, although that is true, but the mercy that was shown in eternity, the mercy that was shown in the covenant that was made with God the Father between the Lord Jesus and God the Father in this covenant transaction, what we refer to as the covenant of grace. The purpose of the covenant of grace was so that his people, his people would be brought unto him. That is of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that again, we are not consumed. We are not removed. But Christ in his covenant with the Father, There was a covenant made that Jesus Christ would be the one that would take care of his children. He would be the shepherd of their souls. He would take care of their persons and he would bring them one day to glory. How did Jesus demonstrate that mercy? He came to this earth. He took on a robe of human flesh without ever ceasing to be God And He became man. He assumed our nature in order that we might be redeemed. He has a tender concern for His people. A concern that brought Him not only to care for our physical, but more importantly, to care for our spiritual, our eternal soul. We understand that not only did He come and assume that human nature, But we also know the cross teaches us that he took on sin, that he was completely 
un, uh, unable to do. He was unable to sin, but yet he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took on our sin, our sorrows, and he redeemed them. He paid for us. This was all done in the past. This was all done as part of what he would do. Christ today is presently demonstrating his mercy to you and I by interceding for us on behalf. He is going between us and the Father. We are, when we have those, those groanings which cannot be uttered, the Spirit makes intercession. That Spirit takes those intercessions to the Lord Jesus Christ. He sympathizes with what we're going through today. Christ knows exactly what you're dealing with today. He knows the discouragements. He knows the disappointments. He knows the sorrows and the afflictions. He also knows our temptations. He knows the circumstances of every one of his flock. That's present mercy. But there's also the future mercy of Christ. That future mercy will be shown specifically at death, at the grave, and one day that glorious resurrection. It will be because of his mercy that death has been overcome, the grave has been defeated, and the resurrection into the day of judgment and the merciful sentence that will be pronounced to his people will be, they are in me. And we will be welcomed into eternal glory with Christ himself. While as we read in the confession, there will be those who will not be welcomed into eternal glory. Folks, we have to remember this morning, and I hope we never forget it. I think it'd be hard for us to forget around here as often as we talk about it. But we need to understand that eternal life is not owed to the works of men, but solely to the grace of God and His mercy. Eternal life is found in Christ. It's given through Him. This is the mercy in which Jude's telling us to look for. Look for the past mercy of God. Look for the present mercy of God. And look for the future. Who is Jude telling us to look for? Specifically look for Christ. Look for Him. He is the one who is coming the second time. He is the one who is coming for His people. And we expect that. We wait for it. We look for mercy by faith. We love His mercy We delight and take joy. We look for his return with patience, but eagerness. Jude shows us here in this text in verses 12, 20 through 23, how that you and I remember the context of the letter, the book of Jude. We've been dealing so often and most every week with these false teachers, these false people who had gotten into the church who were, they were the arm of Satan himself. How do we avoid being influenced and deceived by those false teachers? How do we as a people, if that was to happen to our church, how would we avoid that? And Jude pretty much gives us a step-by-step how we do this. Very important principles. How do we keep from being deceived by false teachers and hypocrites? In verses 20 and 21, you notice he says in verse 20, but ye beloved, building up yourselves. Folks, I can't tell you how important that is, to build up yourself. Oftentimes we come and we expect someone else to build us up. 
Now, I believe that when we come to the church and we gather as a body of believers, we are the church, we are the body, and we ought to find building up, we ought to find encouragement in one another. If you cannot be built up and encouraged in the house of God with God's people, you can't be encouraged anywhere. And even if this church isn't perfect, and it's not, if you cannot be encouraged amongst God's people, there's something wrong. But primarily, he says, build up yourself. Listen, you and I are responsible for our own walk with God. You and I are responsible to build ourselves up in the truth. And if we're going through, despond- we're going through discouragement and we're going through affliction, we're going through trials. Listen, one of the ways to build yourself up is to look to the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. We do that because we know he's always been good to us. He's good to us now and he'll be good to us tomorrow. When you build yourself up in holy faith, he's not telling you to build yourself up in your own strength. He says, build up yourself in your most holy faith. What is this holy faith? This holy faith is the body of truth that is given in the word of God. You build yourself up by the scriptures. You build yourself up by being in the word of God and what he says, praying in the Holy Ghost. They go together. You need to be built up today. Get in the Word and pray. It is so practical and direct. Get in the Word and pray. That is the foundation of our faith. We believe what we believe about Christ because it's in the Scripture. It's not because it is a made-up fairy tale. It is because it is the Word of God. It is the Scriptures. It is the foundation of our faith. And folks, even today, if you're not going through a struggle, you're not going through affliction, you're not disappointed, you're not discouraged, you should never be content with where you are right now. You should desire, say, listen, my present condition needs to be better. My knowledge of Christ needs to be better. I am desiring to increase my faith and build myself up in the body of truth. You say, why do you say that? Because so many people only get in the word and pray when trouble comes. Soon as trouble comes, they're in the scriptures and they're praying. But when everything's going well, they don't touch the word. Their prayer life tails off. Why? Because they're only using God as a means to get them through a situation. We should be building ourselves up daily. We understand that we flee to God in prayer. We go to the scriptures in the word. Our faith is strengthened by the ministry of the word, folks. It's an amazing thing. Oftentimes, and I mean no disrespect by this, but so many times people believe what I really need is I just need to talk to somebody. No, what you really need to do is allow the Word of God to minister to you. Sometimes people just want to talk because they just want to, they want to vent, and there's, there's a place for that. But venting does not minister like the Word of God does. Now again, he's, remember the context. He's talking about situations where false teachers have gotten into the church. People have got in that shouldn't be there. He says, how are you going to keep yourself from falling prey to them? By the ministry of the word. Our faith is strengthened in our ministry through the word, but it's also strengthened in our fellowship with other believers. Folks, there's not a greater thing that we can do as a church than to be together in the word and be praying together. This is what builds us. 
It's not me giving you a motivational speech. It's not me telling you how good you are. It is allowing the word of God to minister us to us even in those times when the ministry of the word convicts us and it cuts us to the heart. That builds us. It's good when the word of God cuts us. It's good when it convicts and reminds us, and, but it's also good when it tells us, boy, the mercy of Christ. These things are the things that are not just good for today. They've been good for the past and they are good for the future. He says, build yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. That is where the power of God comes from, folks. We come, the power of God comes through prayer. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen, folks, none of us is powerful enough to keep ourselves. We're going to learn next week when we get into the conclusion of this book, a doxology. A doxology is an, ascri an ascription of praise. The result of all of this is going to be Jude is going to say, as a result of this entire letter, here's what we ought to do, friends. We ought to break out in a doxology of praise. Where our power comes from is not in our own knowledge and it's not in our own faith. Where the power to live a life of faith comes from is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not your knowledge. It's not even your experiences and they are valuable. The power of your faith is in prayer. You flee to God in prayer. And listen, folks, we're not just talking about a formal prayer. You've heard me say this many, many times. Some of the most powerful prayer you're ever going to pray is the simple word, help. Help. God doesn't need the flowery prayer always. Sometimes it's appropriate for us to be very, but be, I believe it's appropriate to sometimes be very formal in our prayer. Sometimes it, it demands, the situation demands that. But other times, prayer is just simply acknowledging, my help cometh from the Lord. My help doesn't come from me. It doesn't even come to, from my spouse or my children. It doesn't even come from the people in my church. It comes from you alone. Pray in the Holy Ghost. So he uses the word build. But then he also, in verse number 21, uses the word keep. So you see build and keep yourselves. Keep yourselves in what? In the love of God. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? First, the love of God for us through Christ should always be set before you. In other words, the thing you think on the most, and I mean this with everything I can, with any force I can put behind it, Christ should be before you before anything else. Always. You keep the love of God through Christ always set before. What does it mean to set Christ before you? It means to keep him in view. Listen, when you need strength, look to Christ. When you need help, look to Christ. As he wrote and warned us about in this book, when the false teacher comes in, the hypocrite comes in, look to Christ. 
Keep yourselves and remind yourself of the love of Christ. We keep ourselves in his love, but secondly, we keep ourselves in love with God. You know, it's one thing for us to look to Christ and say this, I know that Christ loves me, but have you ever stopped to consider, do you love Christ? It's not a one-way street here. Just because we're saved by his love and understand that we, he loved us first, we are to return that love. Our love's not always perfect, but we are to love him like he has loved us. A mature, strong love cast away fear and it motivates us to continually feed upon the word of God and his love. That's what leads Jude into saying where we started, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. If you could divide this, these verses and the first half of the phrase is verse 20, up to the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then you could just, uh, just kind of make a pretend line between the two thoughts. He says, here's all the things you need to do, but here's the means by which you do it. Looking for the mercy. You keep yourselves and build yourselves and pray in the Holy Ghost by looking for the mercy of Christ. That's how you do it. Every day you're reminded the mercy of Christ in the past, the mercy of Christ in my present, and the mercy of Christ in the future. This is sustaining grace. That's what the doxology next week is going to be all about. The doxology of sustaining grace. Because when you realize you can't build, you can't keep, and you can't pray unless you look to His mercy... Listen, folks, you will be powerless if you do not look to the mercy of Christ when you try to build yourselves, pray, and try to keep yourself. You can do a lot of religious busy work and feel no power because you're not looking to the mercy of Christ. You're looking inward and trying to find strength for yourself that you're never going to find. You are never going to find what you need in you. This is probably not appropriate homiletics, but this world will eat you alive if you try to do it in your own strength. But when you look to Christ, matter of fact, if we try to, if we try to, to, to be a church that does it in our own strength, the world will eat us alive and false teachers will barrel through the front doors of this place. This is not about us. This is about looking for the mercy, his past mercies of the covenant, his redemption of our souls, his presently calling us, interceding for us, comforting us, keeping us. He meets our every need. Folks, there is not a need in your life that Christ has not met or he is going to meet. You say, listen, I've been waiting for God to meet a need for months. You keep on waiting and you keep on looking for the mercy of Christ because He is going to deliver it. You say, how do you know that? Because the Word tells me so. We understand that He meets our every need. His future mercy 
This, this might be hard for us to fully comprehend. It's hard for me to comprehend. His future mercy will be greater than any mercy we've experienced to this point. Future mercy is the best is still yet to come. You say, wait a minute, I like the mercy of God today. I love the mercy of Christ. I do too. But I hath not seen, nor ear hath heard. Paraphrase, what's in store for his children? You and I have not even seen all of God's mercy yet. Folks, when we walk through the portals of death, you are going to understand fully the mercy of God. You are going to understand completely what it is to have experienced the past and the present mercy, but that future mercy is something you and I have a hard time being able to see to this point. So he says, we look for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Verses 23 and 24, or 22 and 23 rather, when we look at them, they almost have the appearance of being a bit out of place. And what I mean by that is he has gone into this introductory statements about the gloriousness of looking under the mercies. And suddenly the narrative changes where he says, and of some, notice of some, have compassion, making a difference. What is it that he's talking about? Well, remember the context of the letter with regard to these professors who have come in who are not truly of the children of God. They are not truly one of God's. You see things in their life that demonstrate to you that they are not who they claim to be. However, he does instruct us that there are some, notice that's why this is important, of some having compassion, making a difference. We are to be fully aware and fully understanding that there are those who may come in with that type of a mentality. They come in, they are those, those false professors, but in them there is a, there, even if it's just the slightest bit of a desire to be brought to repentance, we are to deal with them. Folks, listen, the greatest sinner can walk through the door and can turn in to someone who's a trophy of God's grace. All right, we are all trophies of God's grace. I know we like to level it. We, we say, listen, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, but listen, sin is sin. And there are some that we are going to have to have compassion with. They may come in. And listen, all false teachers are not coming in to destroy and disrupt. Some are coming in because they've been taught wrong. Compassionately take the time to teach them. I'm glad that God's been compassionate with me because I've been wrong on some things. There's been some things God has had to deal with me and God put people into my life to help me see. And when I thought I was completely on the right path, God brought people into my life and said, listen, you might want to reconsider and think about this. Get into the word and pray and see if this is so. I wasn't a false teacher who was coming in to disrupt, but I was misguided on some things. And somebody had compassion on me to say, listen. And the word, have compassion upon them with a reason to hope that they'll forsake the evil when they see it. Understand something, that there will always be those who are going astray, some who are going willfully astray. 
And he mentions in verse 23, and others, notice he says, of some have compassion, others save with fear. There are two types of people he's talking about here, and he's talking about these people, these these wanderers, these false teachers who've come in. Some you're going to have to handle very gently, and others you are going to have to endeavor to save them with the most severe and sharp instruction. In other words, you are going to have to be very forceful in calling out what is wrong. There are some, there are some who've been deceived. There are some who've been tempted because of ignorance. Some who've been deceived because of a temptation. He doesn't say, he does not say to totally cut them off. But he does say there are those who will come in who need to be instructed in meekness, in love, and compassion. Again, he's not talking about false teachers who can be identified as being there to destroy. But there are people, folks, who are going to come into even a church like ours who are going to be misguided. Some of them are going to be severely wrong. This is what the context of this passage is. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spot of the flesh. He's talking about those who come in who are showing traces of repentance, but yet they are sorely wrong. I remember there's been, there's been times in my own life where I hear somebody say something and immediately my theological radar goes off and I say, that's not right. And I, I used to have a, a means, and I'm still working on this, and this is a personal testimony. If I heard something wrong, I immediately jumped on it, immediately. And I still do, but now sometimes you can tell when you talk with people, when you work with people, you can tell the difference between somebody who's there to destroy and someone who's there who just needs some biblical instruction. Not everybody who's misguided is coming to destroy you. But if you don't know the word, if you don't know how to build yourself up, keep yourself up, you are going to be deceived by the misguided one. And instead of them coming around to understanding, you are going to go that way. Folks, I've watched plenty of people who were under solid Bible instruction, who somebody who was misguided came in and convinced them because they didn't know the word themselves. And they were pulled away. Listen, there are some we're going to have to deal with very severely where you have to warn them, listen, you are on a dangerous road. That's what it means to pull them out of the fire. They, these are the severe ones. The compassion is the ones that, listen, maybe they're just a little bit misguided. He's talking specifically here about how do we deal with these things as they enter into the church. Pulling them out of the fire, these are people who are trapped in soul-destroying doctrines. Things that destroy the soul. For example, if a person comes in and vehemently believes I'm saved by works, that is soul-destroying, folks. That's soul-destroying. It's not a minor doctrinal difference. If somebody comes in and says, we disagree on how some part of the worship is done, that's not soul-destroying. A person's soul is not destroyed by matters of preference, but it is destroyed by matters of where salvation comes from. If you're trusting in anything but Christ, that's a soul-destroying doctrine. We don't understand that's as dangerous as any false religion that's out there. 
While we're busy attacking, and we should, we're attacking uh, wicked religions. Sometimes we don't consider how destroying even a false doctrine of salvation is. If you let it even become ingrained even just a little bit inside of a church that good works save me, you'll destroy a, you'll destroy a, a body of believers. So these, these soul-destroying doctrines, we pray, we help, we try to restore them, but we never ever accept for the sake of unity someone who presents or brings soul-destroying doctrine. That's why he says we have to condemn it as if they were wearing a filthy garment. It cannot be accepted. So as we deal with these false professors, and before we get into next week, when we talk about this, this doxology of sustaining grace, folks, listen, there is a principle. Sometimes this is not always said rightly. Some people say that God only hates sin, not the sinner. That's not biblically accurate. God does hate sin, and there are sinners that God hates. We have to understand that, but you and I need to understand. We need to have a hatred for sin, but understand that there are sinners who can be restored. There are sinners who are in this world who are just misguided. They've been mistaught. We must never be believers to say we're okay with the sin, but we should also never be, listen, that person is incapable of repentance. Repentance is the gift of God. The only reason you repented is because God gave you the gift of repentance. He opened your eyes to see your sin and to see yourself as the sinner that you are. Folks, there are times when the most difficult thing we'll ever have to do in a church is to be tender towards a person who is in known sin. but never be tender to the sin itself, okay? There's a big difference in this, folks, and, and this, this, some, some of this maybe seems like it's trailing off from where we started, but this is, this is important. Dealing with sinners, it's not always the same. We, we, we have to be sometimes very tender with people and patient with people and long-suffering with people and realize I'm dealing with God I am, I, am, I am looking unto Christ who gave me past mercy, present mercy, and future mercy, and I extend that to people. I'm extending the mercy of God to people. Folks, I'm promising you, every one of you are going to face something one day. You're going to be standing face to face with a sinner who, even in, their, even in their demeanor, even in their way they're dealing with you, even in the way they're handling you, you think they're beyond, they're, they're beyond rescue, they're beyond restoration. And folks, I will tell you, deal with sinners tenderly. Now again, there are times you, you just simply cannot accept certain things. You, you can't be patient in, with some things. You just can't do it. I mean, there's some sin that you have to call out, for, the, for, for example, for the, for the safety of somebody involved. I mean, I'm, I am heartbroken by scandals in church today dealing with ministry people and children. And 
other churches and other pastors helping cover it up. It's happening at alarming rates. You don't tenderly, slowly deal with that. That's got to be called out. You can't sit there and say, well, deal tenderly. Now, listen, you're talking about crimes being committed. And yet, there are times when you'll have to tenderly deal with somebody who's not being so tender towards you. And even when you do it right, you'll be called things. You'll be called not being tender enough, not being loving enough. Folks, I've had my share of that. I've had enough people tell me that I'm unloving and I'm uncaring and I'm unkind. And I, you just have to deal with it and give it over to God. You just have to say, this is the Lord's, this is, this is the Lord's and I'm doing what I know to do. Folks, it's hard to deal tenderly with people who are exactly what you and I were. See, you're dealing with most people who, most people are not like these false teachers who are coming in to destroy. Most people are people who were just like you, who until God opened their eyes and opened their ears and opened their heart, they just had not yet seen the truth. This this epistle, after he describes all of these people who've made professions, he's told us about who those ones we should turn away from. He's instructed us about those we should have compassion on. He's instructed us about those that we should uh, save with fear. The last two verses, verses 24 and 25, Jude concludes the letter, and we're going to talk about, we're going to save this for next week, because this in and of itself, these two verses, there is so much packed into these two verses. Jude bursts out. He goes from a time of grief and grieving and mourning over the sin that is infiltrating, and he bursts out into a doxology. He ascribes praise to God's sustaining hand. We get a little bit of a preview with that when he says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Folks, right there is for something, right? That phrase alone ought to make you burst forth in praise that I am being kept from falling because you are doing nothing to hold yourself up. Physically, spiritually, eternally. Only God is holding you up. So next week, we'll, we'll deal with that subject, a doxology of sustaining grace. Let's finish with our reading from the Valley of Vision. Appropriately, this one is entitled Mercy. Let's stand together, if you would. We'll read this together, and we'll pray briefly, and then we'll be dismissed. Valley of Vision, entitled Mercy. God of the publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. This I am by nature and practice. This thy word proclaims me to be. This I hope I feel myself to be. Yet thou hast not left me to despair. For there is no peradventure in thy grace. I have all the assurance I need. That with thee is plenteous redemption. In spite of the number and heinousness of my sins, thou hast given me a token for good. The golden scepter is held out, and thou hast said, touch it and live. May I encourage myself by a sense of thy all-sufficiency by faith in thy promises, by views of the experience of others, 
to that dear refuge in which so many have sheltered from every storm, may I repair. In that fountain, always freely open for sin, may I be cleansed from every defilement. Sin is that abominable thing which thou, thy soul hates, and this alone separates thee and me. Thou canst not contradict the essential perfections of thy nature. Thou canst not make me happy with thyself till thou hast made me holy like thyself. O holy God, make me such a creature as thou canst take pleasure in, and such a being that I can take pleasure in thee. May I consent to and delight in thy law after the inner man. Never complain over the strictness of thy demands, but mourn over my want of conformity to them. Never question thy commandments, but esteem them to be right. By thy spirit within me, may my practice spring from principle and my dispositions be conformable with duty. Father, we thank you for this time we've had around the word. Lord, I pray now that as we are dismissed into this time of fellowship, may we keep these principles and these truths ever before us. But most importantly, may we keep the love of Christ and his mercy ever before us. Lord, help us to deal with people properly. Lord, give us discernment and wisdom of how to deal with the sinner. Lord, in understanding that every sinner we deal with, every person who is outside of the body of Christ, we were once like they. May it help us in the way we speak, in the way we, we interact with people. And Father, may you truly be glorified in each one of our lives. And it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen.